we are experiencing a paradigm shift. A fundamental change in the way we usually do things. We are intentionally choosing to see the silver lining. Opportunity arises. We can shine a light on the things that weren't working well, on those things that weren't really working at all. We can regroup, reevaluate, and re-engineer. It's time to explore new patterns and paradigms. Those that inspire us to rise above the chaos and explore how the conditions of today can take us to a better tomorrow. Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast, from Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 2, The Architecture of Healing and Social Equity, with your host, Pattern President and CEO, Jonathan Drapkin. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. We hope you enjoyed Diana Mason's discussion on where we are with the war on COVID, community health, and other important issues, especially a shout out to the nurses in the front line. This week, we pivot to architecture. Joining us is Hudson Valley native Michael Murphy, the founder of the Mass Design Group. To listen to our podcast, all you need to do is continue to subscribe and download Patterns and Paradigms wherever you find your favorite podcasts, such as Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, and Google. If you have any ideas for future topics and episodes, please send them to patternforprogress.org slash podcast. So I was trying to think of where do I want to go for the next big thing? And it's sort of like it's not the next, but it's definitely time to reinterpret the delivery of broadband. We have learned throughout the pandemic of the critical need for equal access to broadband, whether it is for remote work, telemedicine, online learning, and so much more. Broadband has moved from a luxury to a necessity, just like electricity. The goal needs to create the infrastructure and regulation to ensure that this actually happens, that everyone has access to it. Defining being served is a false premise. How many days are you on your internet and you're trying to have a meeting or a phone call and it is disrupted right in the middle? You're hanging on a word and you got to call the person back. The sun is shining outside. There's not a cloud in the sky. Why does this happen? Or for the family that cannot afford the cost of the internet. Or to the family that is told to pay for the last mile to carry broadband to their rural home. The pattern is clear. The post-COVID world can no longer be divided into the have and have-nots when it comes to broadband. What comes next is yet to be determined, but we hope all of our listeners join us in saying it's not a luxury, it's a necessity. Before I introduce Michael, let's ask Joe Chaika, what's up, Joe? Joe, we had a couple of good mentions this week. Maybe you can 
elaborate for our listeners just what they were? Sure, we did. Uh, it's always nice to get good feedback on our work. And it, it is. I mean, you know, often we work and, you know, we we deliver the product, but these are some exceptions that made us all feel pretty good. They, they did. And the beauty of working uh, with our clients, if you will, is that we go back and forth with their feedback, with our input, and we come out with a product I think that we're both happy with. And that takes a little extra time. And I think that's the difference between us and a lot of other groups is that we really incorporate what they're feeling, what they're doing, wh- how they know and understand their audiences. So, for example, up in the city of Kingston, we had been working with them for a good nine or ten months on a project that was um, really designed to understand what their vacant and abandoned properties were like in the city uh, in terms of one, two, and three-family homes. And so we did a lot of field work. Uh, Actually, during COVID, we were socially distanced. We went out and wore our masks, and we did a lot of windshield surveys from the vehicle and walking around the neighborhoods. And we found that the vacant properties in the city of Kingston, majority of the one to four family homes are wooden structures, but they're not in really terrible shape, which is a good thing for a city. And by the end of the, at the end of the day, at the end of the study, we created a series of recommendations for them, eight, eight recommendations, in fact. And the city um, mayor, Steve Noble, he actually brought up the fact that we did the study in his State of the City address. And it was very rewarding for, for our entire team here at Pattern. And um, there were some really good recommendations, I got to say, that we came up with. And a, a few of them, they're going to be putting into place. Um, so that that's a really good positive feedback that we got from the city. Another good piece of information that we got back was Uh, From the city of Hudson, way up in Columbia County, Uh, back about three years ago, we did a series of uh, community engagement sessions and working with a local housing task force, and we developed something up there called the Strategic Housing Action Plan, the SHAP, if you will. Tough name there. That's that's right. We always try to get our acronyms, so it's kind of a fun thing to say. (laughs) So with the SHAP in hand the community, the city, went to a national organization called Enterprise. They used our our study, our recommendations, as a foundation to apply for additional dollars to get our recommendations actually funded. And, lo and behold, they were successful. They just received a $1 million grant for anti-displacement activities in the city of Hudson. They are going to be able to fund a brand new staff position to help coordinate the efforts, which was a major lacking part of their system delivery in the city. So again, our work setting the foundation, our recommendations really move our work forward in those communities. So it's very rewarding to see, and I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to actually continuing our work in the city of Hudson, they uh, they're going to have us start a uh, affordable housing development plan, which we're kicking off probably in about a month, and that's going to help them identify three, four, maybe five developable sites 
for housing right there in the city. And so it's rewarding. And I got to say, these communities, they're very progressive in what they're doing. And it's good. It's a good thing to see here in the Hudson Valley. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate you explaining these things. They often, you know, could go unnoticed, but it is part of the infrastructure of these communities, the work that you, the team of Pattern, are doing uh, in order to ensure, in this case, housing, which has become, I, I can't remember in our 14 years together where this has been as top of mind the need for affordable and workforce housing as it is now. And, and for all the years that you have been laying the foundation for this, um, kudos to you that it is not just being recognized, but that there's actually some funding. Absolutely. Sounds good. <laughs> all right, Joe. Thanks. And now on to our guest. Michael Murphy is the executive director of the Mass Design Group, an architecture firm that leverages buildings as part of the design and construction process to become engines for health, economic growth, and long-term sustainability. Michael sits on the boards of the Clinton Global Initiative Advisory Committee, the Harvard Graduate School of Design Alumni Board, the Center for Healthcare Design, and is an expert in residence at the Harvard Innovation Lab. Michael is a true visionary, a disruptor before the word became common, and most importantly, he hails from Poughkeepsie, New York. Michael, welcome to the podcast. How you doing? Hey, Jonathan. Nice to be here. Thanks. Thanks for this. I'm I'm doing uh, okay, all things considered. I know that's probably the answer of a lot of people, but uh, you know we're in a unique moment in, in time and. Uh, we're surviving okay, both in my family and, and at the firm. But thanks for asking. Um, sure. Um, and look, just on the firm, one of the things about your firm that's so interesting is that you have offices all over the world. So you were almost, you didn't have to pivot. You've been pivoting for years. Well, in, in, terms, of, uh, the, in terms of the Zoom worlds, we, um, if you want to call it that, we, we have been working remotely with teams dispersed across across the globe uh, historically. So there wasn't an incredibly difficult pivot for us to kind of be completely online. Although I would say that I certainly miss um, connecting with my uh, team in person. Um, and, you know, I typically travel an enormous amount, uh, especially to project sites and to see the teams and we haven't been able to do that. So, I'm, you know, I am really looking forward to uh, the end of this and being able to work again with the you know, my team and the communities that we work with and just really be in person has <laughs> been really I, difficult. I, I think there's, uh, you have a lot of company there. So, um, so l let me just start by saying, so it was uh, last month in uh, December, I uh, opened up the uh, Wall Street Journal, the weekend edition, to have their annual innovators uh, special section. And there you are. <laughs> and I, I was just, it was an incredible piece. I learned so much more. I think I know a bit about mass design, but I learned so much more. How did that come about? And were you excited, pleased? What, what was your reaction? Yeah, I mean, it was an incredible honor. And we were really, 
uh, really kind of shocked and humbled when we got the email over the summer um, that they had chosen us as their architect of the year. An incredible company, um, people we really admire, Darren Walker and Titus Kafar, and um, just incredible, incredible folks to to be in that company. So it was a really nice, a nice shock, a nice, um, a pleasant um, email to to open in the middle of this pandemic. You know, I, I think it it's been it's been a difficult year to know if if how architects and architectural discipline and and the practice is going to survive if we we're going to see significant economic downturn and. Um, if that might affect a lot of building projects. Um, but, you know, actually, we've seen the opposite. We've seen growth and a lot of demand for new projects. We've seen incredible effort to keep building projects going. And uh, and then just a lot of focus on the on the on the role of infection control that we have been thinking about for a long time. So it was it was, you know, we we're very appreciative of that kind of attention and and um, and really enjoyed the process going through it. So one of the first things in the article was that at the beginning of COVID, you were actually called upon by various organizations to help them with the redesign, I guess. One was a homeless group up in Boston. Uh, one was one of the major hospitals down in New York City. Um, so that you've actually been directly using your architectural skills as a way for other organizations to adapt to the COVID world? Yeah, well, I mean, it, you know, we've, our organization began uh, with thinking about design's role in addressing epidemic airborne disease in the case of uh, where we, our first project was with uh, the organization Partners in Health and the government of Rwanda building a hospital that tried to mitigate and manage um, tuberculosis and multidrug resistant tuberculosis and its transmission, its airborne transmission through simple design measures like uh, natural ventilation, uh, careful planning of, of, uh, uh, of patients and staff, um, UVGI light. So we've been thinking about and working on infection control for airborne disease since our founding. So when COVID emerged uh, and we, um, were had this experience, you know, our partners that we already had quickly reached out to us, recognizing that, oh, wow, there's a whole spatial reorganization that's necessary to address our needs as in a hospital with serving our constituents. And, you know, and Mass has experience doing that. So, uh, you know, we got right into it and, and developed a lot of um, free guidelines to help so many entities, or at least help organizations think about the spatial and physical implications of infection control in any building that they might be within or be thinking about addressing. So, uh, yeah, it happened really quickly and, and we continue to work on reopening plans, reorganization plans, airflow strategies, and helping, you know, entities think about that today, redesign their systems. It was just incredible to read that, and they used that as the lead, obviously, to connect to COVID. Um, one of the things that I especially enjoy about mass design is the way that you use your architecture to invite people into the space. And it is something that, you know, the photographs, especially of some of the health-related facilities in, in Africa, are are just fascinating to me. I can maybe you can help us on how do you begin that design process of saying 
here is a community, they have a need of health, but we need them to not look at it like a traditional hospital. It's somehow built into the landscape. At least that's my, you know, untrained eye looking at it and saying it's welcoming. Oh, thanks for saying that. I, I you know, and it sounds like you, you do have a really good spatial sense, John. I know you do, and um, you know, I, I think the process really begins with the with the organization that we're trying to serve and their constituents, and they often have the answers uh, and the kind of ideas that they are looking to spatialize, but you know, need designers and architects to join them in in helping articulate that. They think they talk a lot about the impact of the work, what it will be, and. Um, architecture can help address those broader impacts by the way we experience it, you know, in four dimensions. So when you talk about welcoming people, you know, we think really, uh, uh, you know, we think a lot uh, and quite critically about what I would call the threshold problem, which is how do you create an environment which brings people in at many different phases, brings them into a threshold and allows them to understand the infrastructure and then brings them further deeper into the space so that they benefit from its um, from what's designed around them and allows them a way out. I really think about buildings as a kind of cinematic experience. Um, and each of those moments are moments for information, for, in the case of COVID, like clean air, uh, for uh, creating spaces that differentiate between, let's say, contaminated or clean spaces. Uh, or in understanding why the building is there and, and what it, how it's supposed to serve us. So, uh, you know, I, I think if we think about buildings as as a journey, every time you're going through them, then the story of a building, the story of a space, uh, is really the story of the organization. What's the story they're trying to tell? What's the agenda they're trying to bring to their constituents? And that that kind of narrative, uh, the building, I often say, is a narrative vessel, is how we think about the the design that needs to respond to their overall aspirations. Um, although we're dealing with a pandemic and economic unrest um, and disruption, th- there's also been something else that clearly took place over the, you know, in 2020, and that was the social unrest. And and I would think that this is a project that people would run away from, and yet you ran towards doing this pre um, the events of 2020. You know, we're always, I, th- I would say we're always seeking out this thought leaders and change agents who are trying to tackle the hardest issues. And um, we start a conversation where uh, we asked how we could be of service. It's incredible to see architecture, you know, be of service for how we might rethink memorials in our communities, take down memorials, recognize that memorialization is itself fraught with political and social impacts and that the design of the memorial spaces or monument spaces around us is not a neutral thing. It's a very complex and um, conflicted uh, uh, set of decisions about power and who deserves to be recognized and who deserves to be memorialized. And so I've been thinking about the role of memorials in advancing questions of social um, and economic and racial justice before. And I've been really encouraged by so many small grassroots organizations who have asked how they can change the memorial landscape of their own towns and their communities. I've, you know, the Mellon Foundation has recently created an entire fund dedicated to supporting many of these initiatives. Um, so this kind of reckoning about our national narrative and who tells the story is long overdue. 
and with the events of the last week is uh, has taken on a new form <laughs> itself about how the history will be told. And uh, I think we'll be asking this question for, for decades to come. Um, but I hope the work that's able to be accomplished right now in the next couple of years while the attention is um, fixed on this question could really be a profound one to uh, adjust and not just adjust and change, but write the narrative of the United States, write the narrative of our, of our history and, and our future to be more uh, just, more equitable, more true, um, and, and hopefully um, come out of this a little bit better as a nation. I've had one experience building a museum, and that was at Bethel Woods at the site of the original Woodstock Festival. And I got to work with a number of architects and developing the ability to tell the story of the 60s and how Woodstock fit into it. It is a complex process of trying to understand what does the client want? What does the community want? Your place in history. You know, we need to understand the history, but we also need to feel the history. I, I think one of the things that I learned about you know, at least telling the story of the 60s is you wanted to, people that passed through the doors of the museum, you wanted them to come out, for lack of a better word, moved. Mm -hmm. They needed to feel something that was otherwise in a history book. So if I was to read you back, you know, a, a broad description of your firm is that it seeks to Design in a way to foster economic growth, social change, and justice. Is that a you know a fair characterization of the work that Mass Design does? Uh, that, yeah, that is that is how we state our mission statements uh, and um, and how we're configured to ask those questions about how the built environment participates in in questions of social change. So given the George Floyd moment, are there other projects that you've been approached on to try to say, you know, I think for most people, they never knew the story of Tulsa, Oklahoma. They never knew what happened in Wilmington, North Carolina, you know, when there actually was an almost insurrection and taking over the local government. These all seem like they would fall into this broad category of the work that you do in terms of how can we tell a story in a way that moves people. So have you been approached on other projects or ideas? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there are a lot of projects that have emerged in the last year, um, both in terms of what's come into our office, but what we wanted to support other other organizations and other designers to accomplish. You know, I, I've been very encouraged by, again, that groundswell of re, that kind of awakening to authorship of our built world and, you know, why the Memorial Fund at, at, at Mellon and some other uh, grant making organizations is why it's so meaningful is because a lot of these ideas are coming out of small communities who want to tell important histories that have been erased, abandoned, hidden, lied about that actually reveal kind of key moments of the American story. And I would say, you know, as a designer and architect, you know, a lot of those stories have to be spatialized for us to understand them. It's not enough to just hear about them 
you know, on, on a morning news show, we actually have to go and understand what, how they sit within this broader uh, legacy uh, of not just injustice, but a kind of legacy of narratives that have been hidden and been, and been lied about. And that there are places in this country where the kind of multiplicity of our backgrounds have been revealed uh, with all sorts of hope and, and, and indignity, you know, dignity and indignity at the same time. Um, and uh, telling those stories, I think, helps, uh, helps us understand how each of our communities has the possibility to enact change. It's not just one single hero, um, although that's important to have leadership. Um, but, you know, for example, the work we're doing uh, in the Boston Common right now, where we won the competition with the great sculptor Hank Willis Thomas to design the new Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King sculpture in the Boston Common. It's going to be a very exciting uh, project and hopefully a national one of its own accord. Um, but, you know, one of the design strategies in that was to say, well, let's not only, you know, Dr. King and, and Coretta's stories are incredibly important to tell and to memorialize, but the stories of the community of this city of Boston, who sort of fought for economic and social justice uh, for decades and, you know, built the momentum, their stories are important too. So we've tried to create a platform where many more of the hidden stories are also revealed in a plaza, which tells the names of local heroes that are often not reported outside of the conditions of, of the kind of regional, uh, like, uh, oral history. Um, and, you know, while, you know, the King's story is one of legend, international legend, uh, it, it relied on the local movements in order for that broader story to, to be enacted with, with such profound, you know, legislative, um, uh, change. So, I think it's our responsibility, not just as citizens, but, you know, in each of our professions, ours is in the spatial disciplines, but to ask how we can contribute and participate uh, and to and to read our environments anew, you know, differently. I think one of the one of the positive outcomes of of the events of the summer is is how introspective communities are becoming and awakening spatially to well, to a lot of things spatial awakening is just one of them uh um, to how injustice has been steeped into all of our systems all of our um you know all of our processes and how we have to kind of cut it out root and stem um uh, together uh, no matter where we find it so architecture i mean that's why i i love to give you credit to say you didn't need this so this moment of social unrest to know that this was part of your mission statement. But do you think that the disruption itself, and I think you were starting to go there, was um, is going to lead to differences in general for the profession of architecture to say, maybe we need to look at how we do things? Or is your sense that, hey, there were plenty of us that were getting it right before this, and maybe there'll be just a few more of us will think about it. I guess it's a common question that I ask guests, which is disruption in the positive sense that everything that occurred since, let's say, March of 2020 
has led to disruption in supply chain and how we're going to do things differently, the use of technology. So how about an architecture? Is there going to be a disruption of some sort? Well, I think there already is. And I think the disruption is profound. I think we're in a in the next great existential shift in the in the built environment. I, I, I would say architecture, but let's just say the spatial disciplines. I think they're going through the most significant existential shift and they've experienced probably since really the full embrace of let's say green or sustainable or environmentally focused architecture. That's probably the last great moment. This is the next great moment. And it's a, a moment of um, not replacing the environmental moment, adding to it. You know, the environmental moment it uh, was significant in that we started to ask of the built environment, well, what's its footprint? Well, now we have to ask what's, you know, what's its environmental footprint. Now we have to ask what's its uh, human handprint. What's the impact it's having on people and on social systems? And is it reinforcing systems of power or is it liberating them? There are key questions that are being asked right now um, about the built environment and, and how it is complicit in reinforcing these systems of power or how it is potentially an agent in, in addressing them. I think that is most evident in the, the response to COVID. You know, COVID, as most epidemics do, reveals how our systems uh, are broken and what it reveals the cracks in the systems and really, it, it, you know, kind of opens them up in a, in a radical way to reveal kind of where, where the system is broken. And, you know, COVID is a, has, has given us, given me a, a kind of evidence that, you know, the world around us affects our health every single day. The breathing itself, the ability to breathe is a spatial problem. You know, if we don't have the right environment, we can't breathe. And I mean that both in terms of uh, are we living in our houses or the, our places of work? Are they infecting us? But also to go out on the street, and of course, the I can't breathe mantra of, of the fight for racial justice um, has not been lost on those who are arguing for um, not just the ability to breathe, but access to breath and not just spaces that allow you to breathe, but uh, but a. a you know, a social system, an infrastructural system, which gives us the ability to have access to breath. I know it's a very subtle analogy <clears throat> to have a physical human being caught saying on a video, I can't breathe in the midst of a pandemic in which people are saying we can't breathe. And it is driving people to it. I don't know if they make the connection between it as, as you just did. So let me ask you a couple, I, you know, it's fun because I have you here. So, so let me ask you a couple of questions. So one, is there a project that you looked at the architecture and you said, either, I really, really like that. It's one of my favorites. I love what they did there. So let's start there. Any favorites that you look at around the world and say, that's a must, and that you know group or that person, they were brilliant in how they represented whatever the issue or story they needed to tell. 
you know, it's funny when you put people on the spot, you kind of mind goes, <laughs> mind goes empty. But, I you know, know. some of the first from some of the fir- some of the folks, I mean, I, there's so many. I think great architecture exists all over. And, um, you know, it's this it's a beautiful uh, resolution. Architecture is a resolution of the constraints of place that make it successful. And so those architects who are able to um, narrate a story through their work um, that reveals identity of place, identity of um, social constraints, the aspirations, you know, sometimes with limited budgets, I think are ones that I gravitate towards, but also tell a material story as well. So one of my, certainly one of my favorite architects is, um, I think of Marlon Blackwell. Marlon Blackwell is uh, in Northwest Arkansas and has built this absolutely just stunning um, portfolio of genius work that is about that region, that is about a kind of approach to materiality and and form uh, that is both heroic as well as local. It really changes the way you think about design. It's incredible. I think the American designers in the Southwest uh, also um, are really uh, are really doing incredible things because they're dealing with kind of extreme climate conditions of the desert and really sure. finding resolutions of that um, of that climate, which produce like absolutely stunning uh, regional American architecture, which is really I think inspirational and worth worth looking at. Um, th- there are. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm always encouraged. I think architects are given a bad rap and they're being critiqued a lot these days. But I, I think they're they're always struggling with these issues. It's just whether they have the um, the kind of audience to accept that the compromises that they're making, the advances that they're pushing forward, are, are not just formal. They're not just like formal play. I mean, they're seriously considering environment and climate and social conditions. I really encouraged by those who are able to accomplish that. So, you know, I, I won't, I won't opine too much. Uh, that, that, that's fine. It's a diff, it's a difficult question. So, all right, how about let's try this one, which is, so in the aftermath of nine 11, they struggled a long time with the appropriate memorial to an event of that magnitude. Uh, Oklahoma city, the bombing also has a memorial to it. Someday, some way, someone will want to make a memorial or a museum to tell the story of the pandemic of 2020, 2021. Let's be honest, this is a multi-year experience. Any early thoughts about how you would take on a project like that? And and I'm not pinning you down. I'm just asking process. What what would go into thinking about how to tell this story? Uh, well, funny you ask. <laughs> we have actually thought about this recently. Um, I'm uh, not surprised, by the yeah, way. Yeah, <laughs> we we um we we worked on a proposal actually thinking that would it, this is a hypothetical but wouldn't it be interesting to uh, have a instead of an audience for biden's inauguration have a memorial to COVID there filling the national mall what a great idea and so uh, uh, the amazing gary hildebrand landscape architect also from Hudson valley um worked we kind of came up with a couple concepts about putting a 
a tree for every victim on the National Mall instead of a person and uh, planting a forest um, uh, to commemorate uh, those lost in this, in this horrific tragedy that so many of whom could have been, could have been avoided with, with, we had real leadership. Um, well, I, and, that, and that makes sense, especially since you're not going to fill the mall with a couple of hundred thousand people. And, you know, actually today, the governor of the state of New York is delivering his state of the state address virtually. Yeah. So is there not something that's really so that I like that. That's really clever. You know? Yeah, well, just, you know, I think in this space of memorial design, we have to think about what we can experience, but also engage locally. So, you know, one idea with these trees would then be distributed across the country to all the different counties and communities that, um, with naming their, their lost loved ones. So, so I mean, there's, there's that's ways. Similar, sorry, Michael, that's similar to nine 11. There are memorials all over the yeah, U S and, you know, people have their own, remembrance of what occurred on that day this is a mult this is you know i frequently people say you know the number of people who died in one day is equal and now surpassing the number of people that died on 9-11 now the 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 audacity of what occurred on 9-11 as an individual experience is one thing the the overall two-year it, it, it's just a, it's the thing that history books will write about for the next 50 to a hundred years, it, it, you know, based on how long we wrote about the pandemic of 1919, you know, so. Um, yeah. How about projects in your home? You know, uh, in, in the bio, we, we sketch out that, you know, your family originally came from Poughkeepsie and how about other things you've ever thought about that you wish you could do in the Hudson Valley? Well, you know, as you know, I'm a proud um, Poughkeepsie, uh, not resident, but uh, a former Poughkeepsie resident. Uh, grew up there, went to high school there, middle school there. Uh, still call it my hometown. And um, uh, this this was a question that actually someone posed to me uh, years ago when I was working one of our first projects in Haiti after the earthquake and after the cholera epidemic there. Uh, the amazing local leader, Brian Doyle, who um, runs a local nonprofit in Poughkeepsie, reached out to me, which is an email and said, you know, great, great to see what you're doing in Haiti. When, when are you ever going to come back to Poughkeepsie and work on some stuff we're dealing with here? And I, you know, I, I thought that was a really, really powerful kind of call to arms to me. It was, it was both sobering as well as encouraging, you know, that our hometown which, um, which suffered from, I was always taught was like a, someone called it a museum of failed urban renewal projects, <laughs> um, was this, uh, landscape of, uh, failed, you know, designs, like designs that were thought and were planned to, revitalize, renew, re-energize, reawaken the city 50 years ago didn't work. In fact, they reinforced some of the same inequalities that they might have sought to address. And often 
with very progressive people at the helm coming up with those designs, trying to leverage, um, you know, dollars put from the Johnson administration. So I think the kind of uh, realm of um, it, it's you know, Poughkeepsie for me is is where I learned about the built environment uh, failing, failing its citizens. But it's also where I've learned that there are so many initiatives that have been wanting to happen for decades there that haven't had the money behind them, the energy behind them, or the designs uh, really in front of them to, to, to build the momentum to make them happen. So a couple of years ago, we um, set up a, an office in Poughkeepsie, really just a team, uh, to really kind of mine those stories and mine those initiatives and see if we could, through our own kind of grit, and support and connect, you know, connecting other folks and grant writing, make some of them happen. Um, and five years later, I'm like pretty encouraged that some of these huge initiatives uh, are starting to get traction. And I, I'd love to see happen in the next couple of years. Um, and um, they were things I thought about for 30 years, like uh, the arterial highways, which ah. are this just horrible remnant of urban renewal designed for a city that would grow in size by like three times uh, while the city's population actually shrunk. So you have these highways for 150,000 people when really only, you know, you need like a quarter of what we have in terms of highways for the current population. And, and they divided the city and sorry, go on. No, I was going to say that's probably for our listeners, just do what you were about to do, which is how they these arterials actually run right through the middle um, and divide the city. Yeah, and they really divided the city. And, and there was a big move to build arterial highways in the mid-century because thinking that, oh, the car, we got to bring people in to, you know, to the downtown and then move them out. And so there was a big vision that this would be a, a progress, but it actually destroyed so many downtowns and Poughkeepsie really got beaten up. So as you know, across the nation, cities with more resources have, you know, been able to take those art, same arterial highway designs and turn them back into bi-directional streets and, uh, you know, boulevards and uh, sometimes eliminate them altogether. Um, and you're seeing those kinds of projects in Buffalo and Hartford and elsewhere, but Poughkeepsie's smaller and doesn't have the resources quite to do that. So we need to build momentum. We need to help people understand the damage these highways did to the city and, and also, you know, render a vision of what it would look like if we got rid of them or if we, you know, um, reduced their size and the arguments for them are, are hilarious. They're just straight out of a kind of mid-century playbook. Oh, we need to move through fast. Oh, we need, you know, we don't want traffic, you know, we, you know, there's not enough parking and, and these arguments really, um, are not actually, they're not, true arguments i mean you know when you start to dig into the numbers you know poughkeepsie has something like uh 75 more parking than it needs <laughs> right you know so, so you start digging into that as an urbanist or just looking at the numbers you say oh wow those are real issues it's the amount of their public realm committed to parking committed to highways could be given back to the city to, to for development for housing for public and social services uh, but we just need to kind of move those ideas along um, uh, together. And, and so it's something that we've been working 
on trying to push forward. Yeah, it's your your efforts in uh, Poughkeepsie, uh, you know, Chris Croner, uh, just terrific. Uh, but you mentioned housing. So I'm going to make this my last question, which is there is a desperate need for affordable housing. As an architect, have you ever thought or spent time saying what it could look like so that communities, instead of saying, we don't want that housing in our community, and let's face it, there's a history of how to build it bad, um, but have you ever thought about how to build it in a way that people would go, wait, 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 I'd like that. That's really attractive. It's interesting. I know there are cost elements involved. Has I I I know that this is really not in the, you know, like the recent Wall Street Journal article. It's not in that. You wouldn't find it there. But you're a curious person in the sense that you think about lots of different things. Have you ever thought about affordable housing? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're we have an entire portfolio of affordable housing that we're working on right now. And uh, we probably have a, half a dozen projects that are in on the boards. And um, our first uh, initiative in Boston is under construction is going to be under construction this year. Um, and we've been looking at affordable housing in a number of different ways. Um, uh, but in particular, about, you know, senior housing or aging in place housing. So housing that is wrapping around services really with specific um, uh, social needs and embedding that within the building itself. And I think to your point, you know, we often have, have given affordable housing a bad rap because we've, you know, des- well, designed it to be as cheap as possible. At absolutely the bare minimum cost to serve, you know, the, the most um, needy constituents and the ones who need the housing the most. And I think that kind of devil's bargain is really misplaced. We, you know, these organizations, great one in Poughkeepsie named, you know, Hudson River Housing, you know, they're fighting, fighting for grants or fighting for state dollars to try to build better housing and serve the communities that need it the most. And they do a heroic job in our community, but every community and a lot of communities, not every community, a lot of communities have these housing nonprofits who are doing their best to wrestle with very limited resources to serve the underhoused and the, um, and the homeless. And um, that's only increased in the pandemic. And of course, before that was the opioid pandemic, which also increased our need for um, housing and um, the economic injustices that we're facing now is only going to only further disenfranchise um, those in terms of not just affordable, but appropriate housing for them. So it's a huge design problem, but it's also a financial problem. You know, it's also about creating new um uh, new financial models and mechanisms of, of paying for, you know, creative mechanisms to pay for housing, which serves this population, which isn't just based on the current, really, I wouldn't say um, it's not ineffective, the current system, but it's just, it's not obviously meeting the need of no, you know, tax incentives and, you know, grant and grant support and, um, you know, those, and and a basic you know, market-based strategy of building affordable housing. It's not really. It's clearly not serving the the need that's out there. So we need to come up with new financial structures, new models of of paying for this this work, and then new designs which integrate uh, affordable and market-based housing together. Uh, refill these downtown districts which have been abandoned. I think there's an incredible opportunity. We're seeing this with the pandemic 
you know, the high market in Poughkeepsie is for the first time in 50 years, like exploding. You're seeing that all these old towns around the around the nation. So it's an important moment, I think, an opportunity we can take a hold of. Michael Murph, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your creativity. Thank you for your willingness to take on issues that most people would run from. <laughs> and you know, I think um, we're we're fortunate that you come from the Hudson Valley, and um, we can share a little bit in in your. Um, disruption and creativity disruption to me is a good word it's not a bad word so thanks well, thank again. you thank you john thanks for all you all do it's really a um, pleasure to, to talk with you and um you know too much too much more exciting work in the hudson valley in the future thanks for including me thank you for tuning in to patterns and paradigms the pattern podcast for more information about this episode visit our website patternforprogress.org forward slash podcast.